Today's episode of the Ryan Rosillo Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by State Farm. Just like basketball, the game of life is unpredictable. Talk to a State Farm agent and get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. Uh, something unexpected is that Fight Island is real, folks. I don't know if it was just a cartoon drawing, but that's enough for me. I'm all in on Fight Island. Uh, there are rumors that it could be uh, Block Island, but I never believed him. So it's good to know that it's it's out there and it already looks done. I don't know. I'm still not 100% sure, but it was unexpected because I thought, is Fight Island really going to happen? And I guess it is. Get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. Talk to a State Farm agent today. I can imagine Fight Island's trying to get all sorts of policies on that deal right now. So they should call up State Farm. Today's guest will be Dominique Foxworth from ESPN. We're going to talk about all sorts of stuff and uh, specifically the CBA. And he was the NFLPA president. And I've always loved his perspective on this kind of stuff. Um, he's an incredibly, incredibly uh, accomplished guy, not just playing in the NFL, but NBA from Harvard and then working on player sides for so many different things. So uh, I, I like that and make it topical too. And wh- what would it be like right now if the CBA were not done? And how would it play out differently? Would it play out differently at all? So a lot of different stuff that we'll do with Dominique. But first, this week's Open is about college spending. And I'm not talking about tuition for your child. And I'm not talking about you being in school trying to figure out how to make it work for 20 bucks over the next week. I'm talking about what college programs are spending and specifically college football and college basketball all over the country. There have been massive spikes in television revenues. We already know this. I'm going to go over some of this stuff a little bit later. But what we've always heard is there's been this battle of can't the players get a little slice of this? And as I've said, I'm not an NCAA anarchist, but I do believe that There's just a time now for the revenue-generating sports to find a way to siphon some of that money to the players. Now, I'm not all in on some of the stuff that I read about sharing some of the revenue, but I think it can be shared, and there's plenty of money to be there. But what we'll always hear is that there isn't enough money. Now, there's also a lesson here that's very, very simple, and that is if you give a person an excuse, they will use it Okay, most of the time. And college programs will always say, well, you know, we just don't have enough money. We can't really do those things. Now... Facing the coronavirus, and I don't know what's going to happen here in the fall. It went from maybe no college football, we'll have it in the spring, to maybe we'll have empty stadiums, but we can't really have athletes back if there aren't students that are back. And then it's like, well, what if we do online courses? Then two Texas schools were like, screw it, we're playing football. We'll see you guys. Classes start September 1st. Maybe they start a little bit earlier. But you get the point. This has evolved, and it's been rapid, and it's happening very quickly, where it feels like we may be building back to some version of college football that we've always lived with. Now, If the second wave happens, who knows? I don't know if it's happening. You probably don't know if it's happening either. But that's the point is we've we've moved off of total and absolute pessimism to now kind of just hopeful optimism. So that means that there will be if there's a muted version of of whatever the product is, the television money will be there. It'll be worth it because everybody's going to be watching. But if you're not making the same in parking and concessions and all the different things, the in-game experience then the programs will say, well, you know what? We're really not making enough money. Now, the question I would ask is, is it that you're not making enough money or it's the way you're spending the money? Because severance payouts to college football coaches and college basketball coaches have spiked so much in the last decade and a half, and I don't think anybody's talking about it. Let's talk about how you spend. Because I know for myself, I didn't have any money really for, I don't know, 20s to early 30s. The first time I finally saved a little bit of money, I finally felt like a grown-up. And it's like, man, and in those times where you're not saving any money and you're living check to check and you're going, all right, I have this constant anxiety about money that sucks and you just keep getting into the cycle, but it doesn't really change until you can find a way to actually make more. And the first time I actually knew, hey, wow, this is unbelievable. I'm going to have this amount of money in my checking account every two weeks 
and it feels real and I feel like a grown up. And I called my father and I said, this is great because now I'll finally be able to save some money, put aside something and maybe think about something bigger down the road. And he kind of laughed at me and I thought, well, wait a minute, why are you laughing? And he's always been pretty good at, in how he saves. And I thought, well, what, what? He goes, look, I know you, you've been broke pretty much your entire adult life and I'm not going to like you're going to buy a new car, you're going to you're going to live to your new standard now. It's not that you're going to save more, you're going to live to a new standard because you're making more. I was like, "Oh, I don't know if that's true." And he was right. I did buy a new car. I did get a nicer apartment. I did buy new furniture. I started doing things that I wasn't doing before, and then I started realizing, "Hey, with all of this new money, you haven't saved any of this stuff because now you're living to this new standard that you've set." And college football and basketball programs are doing the exact same thing. Here's a number for you. From 2005 to 2019, the Power Five public schools that we have records of, college football has spent $390 million in severance payouts to coaches that are gone, and basketball has paid $102 million. And some of that's obviously the staff, the head coach, and maybe even athletic directors. So in 15 years of data that this one website, Athletic Director U, actually has, that's, yes, Athletic Director U, ADU, a lot of the stuff that I looked at there, over that short amount of time, that's almost $500 million with data that's actually missing. Now, schools, when they come back, could say, well, it's not the same. What are you spending your money on? Well, scholarships, no, not really. Travel, no. Are you propping up other programs? Yes, that's true in some cases. But what you're really doing is because of all this extra television revenue, you're spending to a new lifestyle and you're getting away with it while you're also complaining that you're broke all the time. All right? Now, let's look at some of my favorites here. Nebraska football and basketball since 2005 has paid out almost $28 million in seven payments the most of any Power 5 program. Florida and just football alone is just under $25 million. Nebraska behind them. You know who's third? Third in just football severance payments? Kansas at almost $24 million. The Harvard Current had an article about UConn football. They generated $3 million in revenue. It cost them $16 million in actual salaries and buyouts. There were some Randy Etzel bonuses where he would get two grand if the team were up at halftime. Granted, it's just two grand, but the entire contract doesn't make any sense. So when I dug a little bit deeper, I go, wait a minute. So is it that because the severances have gone up that you're claiming that you're broke? And yes, we can talk about new facilities. And I'm not even telling you that coaches' salary shouldn't have gone up with the new revenue that's coming in from television. But what I'm telling you is that you can't sit there and spend all this money on facilities, spend on the coaches, but then also fire all these coaches that you're so excited to hire in the first place and then come back and say, hey, there isn't going to be any money because that's the other part of this. The money isn't going anywhere. Let's take a look at some of the conference payouts for these programs. The SEC with the new ESPN deal where they're going to have the Saturday game of the week, so they're going to have the CBS game. It's supposed to start in 2024, but it could be bought out, and so therefore it could start even earlier. CBS made a ton of money off of that deal because of the way it was negotiated. ESPN came in and spent so much more because it's such a valuable property, where the SEC, who in 2018 paid out each of its schools $43 million, they're going to get a $20 million bump. So in 2024, they could be making $65 million. Other projections show that the SEC and Big Ten could be close to $80 million per program by 2025. In 2018, the Big Ten led the way with $54 million. That's that $43 million number per team in the SEC. The Big 12 made $35 million a team. The Pac-12 and ACC, both around $30 million per team, and they're actually in last. And you think, okay, well, how is the ACC or Pac-12 going to keep up? But think of the increases that we've had in television revenue, and I just used the ACC here because all the numbers were real. The ACC in 2011 and 2012 did a new television deal with ESPN that paid the schools then $13 million per year. That doubled 
the team payouts prior to that in the previous television deal. The ACC, not 20 years ago, less than 20 years ago, really like 13 years ago, was paying schools six million per school with their television revenue. Then it went to 13, and now they're last at 30. Now, there's another part of this where if you're out in the Pac-12, you could be worried because projections show that in 2024, 2025, you might be at 40 million per team, and you're thinking, well, that's great. We're at 25% higher. Not great if the Big Ten and the SEC are both making 80 million per team. And this is all television revenue projections. Now, you could say, wait a minute, what about the bubble? Because everybody's a bubble expert after the big short. We get that. But is there really a television live rights bubble? You could say that just based on trends saying, well, if everything keeps going this way, there has to be some correction at some point. But I could argue, yes, as media companies struggle everywhere, the thing they may want is, well, give me the one thing I know I can actually turn for a profit instead of all these other things that I'm experimenting with that aren't actually working out. And that's why the television bubble for live rights and sports, I don't think is going away anytime soon. And if the bubble means that you're not going to get as much as you thought, but you still get more, I don't know that that's really a bubble. So you don't even have to worry about how much you've been spending because you can look at the projections and realize how much more that you're going to make. And there's been no one that says, hey, maybe this is out of control. Because if you go back to 2005 and you look at the actual average severance per these Power 5 schools, it's not even close to what it is now. This has just been accepted. And part of that is our fault. Because why? We're fans, and then there's more um, prestigious fans in us that are boosters that write these checks that influence ADs. And every time it's the next new hot coach that every fan base absolutely has to have, whether it's Tom Herman, who everybody's like, eh, now Harbaugh, who I think is unfairly meh, but again, Chip Kelly. Now all of a sudden people think he can't even coach. I brought up David Shaw as one of the five guys I would want to run my program. Cause I think the world of him and he had a bad season finally. And people thought I was nuts for even bringing him up because of one bad season after a great decade long run at Stanford, Scott Frost, so it's like, finally, we're back. Are you? Miami has tried to hire um, everybody with every kind of background. And then Kevin Sumlin in his first couple of years at AM, other teams were mad that they didn't hire him. And now he's at Arizona. So part of this is our need for immediate gratification when the new hire comes in. But we turn the page on these guys so much quicker. The sport isn't different, right? The sport isn't any different. I went through the 1999 SEC coaching tenures and he had Spurrier. At that point, was in his 10th season out of 12. Fulmer was eighth season out of 17 with Tennessee. Jim Don and Steamers. Um, he only made it five years in Georgia. I could go through a bunch of these other ones. My favorite still might be Jerry DiNardo, who barely won six games at Vandy. Actually, one coach of the year at Vandy from going one and 10 to five and six. I didn't expect to see that in my research. Jerry DiNardo, who went from LS from Vandy to LSU, which would never happen today. And people were still making fun of Jerry DiNardo every time I go to Baton Rouge. And then he ended up at Indiana. And then he ended up on College Game Day Radio with Dave Revson and Todd McShay. And Todd McShay said he was a really nice guy. Booger McFarland called him a piece of shit on our podcast, which was interesting. And there was no real follow-up there. But it just felt different back then because these guys lasted so long. I mean, Cutcliffe was at Ole Miss for seven years and they were like, eh, we can do better. And Cutcliffe probably is one of the most successful, given her circumstances, uh, most successful head coaches in college football today. And then you had Houston Nutt, who made it 10 years at Arkansas. Ole Miss couldn't wait to get him in there. And he went from nine and four to two and 10 in four years. I also have some Jackie Sherrill stats that I'm not even going to share with you because I feel like now I'm getting distracted. Let's bring it back on the track. These guys are getting fired all the time because the money's bigger. But they're getting fired all the time because the money's bigger. Because you feel like, hey, we can just fire this guy and pay the entire staff. We'll have these severance payments. Like, what's $25 million in severance over a decade? 
Is it really that big of a deal? Look at all the TV money that we're going to get. I had this friend. His name was Mike. He's still a friend. We were both broke. We were on the Cape, I think, for a night out in the summer. And we were like, how are we going to pay for everything tonight? And he's just threw down a credit card. He's like, I got it. I was like, really? Because yeah, I got a couple things cooking. He had nothing cooking. Nothing. But in his head, he thought he had something cooking. And that was enough. He didn't even have the fake money coming that was already fake. He, he didn't even have any of that. These schools can do this because there is something coming. More TV money. But, but the lesson, again, in all of this is, are you going to tell us that you're broke all the time? But why are you broke? Why are some of these programs underwater? Is it because there isn't enough money? No. It's because there's so much money. And you haven't adjusted for this yet. And everybody accepts it. It would be like my roommate saying, hey, do you have rent? I'd be like, no. Like, what do you, what do you mean? I'm like, oh, there's not enough money. You don't have enough money? Well, I bought jeans, so I can't pay you rent. And thinking that that was a reasonable excuse. Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized and actionable insights on your sleep, recovery, and daily exertion. May, maybe, or may have been Mental Health Awareness Month, but it doesn't mean you can't keep monitoring everything that goes into just your absolute daily routine and whoop helps you get there um this is important stuff right to monitor the stress we're putting on our bodies and how we recovered on a day-to-day basis with whoop you get a recovery score each morning based on your hrv resting heart rate and sleep performance the app has built-in features like strain coach which gives you target exertion goals to work out optimally based on your recovery data if you're stuck training at home it's the perfect feature to use the app also has a sleep coach which tells you how much sleep you should be getting based on your goals for the following day wake up feeling recovered and ready to take on the day mine's dialed in you do the month plus keep looking at the stuff it learns your body and it becomes a fun thing to try to beat some of your records and also to know that, you know what, you know, some of those days where you're working out and you go, I just don't feel like I have it. You're going to look at your device and go, okay, this makes sense. So maybe you change your routine going into it ahead of time instead of wasting 35 minutes going, well, none of us are wasting any time at the home workouts. There's no one to talk to. Whoop is offering 15% off with the code Rusillo, R-U-S-S-I-L-L-O at checkout. Go to Whoop. That's W-H-O-O-P.com. Enter the code Rosillo at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter with Whoop. By the way, I guess a lot of gyms are open in different parts around the country. So that will not be the case here in California. And what do you want to do after you work out really hard? Drink. Miller Light Beer. During this time of social distancing, connecting with friends over a beer today looks pretty different. As the original light beer, Miller Light has always been there to bring people together in real life through Miller Time. Miller Time is a moment for people to come together in real life to connect over a few beers. But having Miller Time is tough when you can't be with your people. I'm excited. Miller Light did send me a just a, a fun kit. Um, a Fuji Instant Cam. And then some brass... Maybe not brass. I don't know what the composite is, but some really heavy-duty cups and uh, a 12-pack of Taste Great, Less Filling. So once we're over this thing, you know, who's going to, who's coming over for a little uh, pong? I wonder if they need my address. Yeah, we should, uh, we should get you that uh, address. I'll follow should- up with them. Yeah, good. Sounds good. Miller Lite is a beer that makes Miller time possible. Miller Lite is the original light beer that tastes great and is less filling, which means it won't get in the way of enjoying time with your people. Um, 
there was a bunch of guys doing um, some sheetrock, and they were doing the corners. Now, I could tell by their corners they were Miller Lite guys. Miller Lite, the original light beer. While you're home, enjoy a classic available for delivery today. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories and 3.2 carbs per 12 ounces. All right, I'm excited to talk to my guy, Dominique Foxworth. 2005-2011 NFL career. And something that I learned about uh, Dominique, especially getting to talk to him and be around him, is that he was the youngest ever vice president of the NFLPA executive committee. And then in 2012, he was elected president of the NFLPA. And as I mentioned with Bill, and I have mentioned this numerous times, like I'm a big CBA guy. I love talking about it. I think I understand it. Um, I, I would say modestly, like I, I know I'm not an expert on it, but it's just something that's really interesting to me. And I remember I'd done a segment about the players in the 2011 deal. I'm like, man, these guys got killed in this deal. And, and Foxworth comes up to me, he goes, do you have any idea? You just like set me straight immediately. And that's how we met each other, um, yeah. which I think is, it's one of the most important conversations I've ever had because you got me to understand. So when you would hear somebody like me on the air, this big platform talking about these CBA, then you're in it, you're leading it up for the players. What was always the most frustrating part of that for you? Uh, I mean, I think it's just the people don't have all the information and they parachute in at the last minute and like make decisions and they have a misunderstanding of how negotiations work. Like they think it's like the movies where you can walk in and you just got to play hardball or like there's some sort of negotiation tactics that'll trick the other side, like negotiations about outsmarting them or out gaming them. No, it's about leverage and, and wielding that leverage, creating that leverage and timing. Like that's what it's about. And so, yeah, when you, I guess I'm used to it from being a football player because football is a complex game and people pass judgment on what happens on the field, even though for the most part, unless you are analysts and you're like watching it uh, very, very critically and you have a background to understand it, people don't really know what's happening. They just see like the final score and that determines like, Hey, this guy stinks or this guy's, be honest, you probably hated most every analyst as a player. <laughs> uh, yeah, probably. I mean, either I hated them or I didn't think about them that much. And I know the the I don't read, I don't watch thing is is something that people say and you assume it's a lie. But I didn't really read or watch much stuff about myself. Uh, it would get to me sometimes and it would upset me or make me feel good. But I, I just didn't care that much to consume football 24 hours a day like i'm it's, that's work when i get home i don't feel like doing more work i want to go do something fun listen to some music or watch a show or uh, when i was in my early 20s make some friends so when you are heading up these negotiations when you broke down the math of it you know where you go mm -hmm. the nfl is different now i do think that sometimes the the shortened career thing can be exaggerated with running backs. Be like, oh, you're only like if you're good and you're going to play, you're going to play for, a, for longer than the three year average that's kind of thrown at everybody. Right. And I think that average is dragged down by the guys that like are on a squad for a year, and then they get them off the team and they realize he can't play. But the math just doesn't work out, right? Like, how right. impossible yeah. is it for you to ever have players say, hey, we're going to actually change the tide here and and really sacrifice some things because that's yeah. as we saw from the last vote, it's hard to get players to do that, especially when it's this many. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the average is dragged down by those players, but they're players too, and they that that matters. So the averages, I think, is the the best number to use. But I do understand your point. Is like the names that we know don't play for three years, 
But I think the math, the interesting thing is the NFLPA is kind of thought of as one of the weaker unions. But the same thing's happening to all sports unions. And you could probably make it even broader. It's happening to all unions. And I guess it, during this time, with the exception of the police union, that's a whole nother conversation. But the power that unions have is is dwindling. And we can look at the NBA. I know people talk about how much power they have. They have a unique situation over there. And we saw their money went down two CBAs ago, and then it kind of stayed the same when they when uh, and I was there in the early parts of that negotiation when they wanted to increase it. Same thing for Major League Baseball. While they don't have a salary cap, they have a very restrictive um, revenue sharing situation that kind of creates a league wide salary cap. And then they have service time that makes it harder for guys to get paid. So the, I think the average um, the revenue breakdown. I think baseball last time I checked, like three or four years ago, they were the lowest percentage of revenue, despite the fact that they have a couple of guys with big numbers. So it's a tough situation and, and it's a long way to go to get to the, the question that you asked originally is that the money doesn't work out because of how long players' careers are relative to how long owners own the team and how much it's worth. So if you have a big piece of pie and let's say you cut it in half, you split it 32 ways, that's better than splitting it 1,500 ways. And then if you think that you get to get a new piece of pie or a new pie every year for into perpetuity, if you're the owners, then let's say on average, maybe one point, and I'm, I don't remember the numbers now, but I'll pull this out of anywhere. Let's say one percentage point on the CBA, just for to make it easy, is like worth $20 million per team. Uh or yeah, twenty million per team. If you divide that up across all fifteen hundred players, it's not very much money. But twenty million for an owner is a lot of money, especially if your career as an NFL owner lasts as long as you want it to last. So, if you're saying we're going to a lockout, and one of the only points of leverage that you have as a player is to go on strike or withstand the lockout, then every minute that you spend away is money that you'll never get back because you don't own your position into perpetuity. You can't hand it on to your kids. You will lose that job. And every year that you spend away from the game is one year older you are and one less uh, year of earning that you have. So it just doesn't make sense uh, on an economic level to win that way, which is why we always end up in court. And everyone, no one ever likes that, but like that's the only way we can find some recourse is to be able to threaten their antitrust protection and they have antitrust protection they're allowed to do a lot of to, to operate as a legal cartel because the union exists which is why one of the articles i wrote a long time ago that people seem to like was the argument that maybe players have outlived the usefulness all pro sports team or um, unions have outlived their usefulness and maybe you decertify the union forcing the leagues and the teams to operate as other businesses would and they wouldn't be able to do some of the legal things like have a draft or um, have a salary cap and and trade players and all all those things that uh, we become accustomed to. I feel like everybody who's listening is falling asleep already. Only no, you and me I, care about this, Ryan. <laughs> no, but this is I promise this is, you, no one cares. This is some of the stuff where it'll it'll make me sound like I. I it's very much like a lot of topics, right? You have to be all player. You have to be all owner. And sitting mm-hmm. with enough guys that have played and caring about it as much as I do. I know where I stand on the player owner thing, but every now and then there'll be like a little owner thing where I go, okay, well, is it wrong? Like, is, is the draft wrong? Is it wrong that if you're drafted and you're good, like, is it Seattle's fault that they were the one that picked Russell Wilson? 
And is is it messed up that Russell Wilson's making less than everybody else? Yes, but is it is it the ownership? Is it the team's fault? Like, is there any part right. of this where you are right. like philosophically flexible on? Yeah, Absolutely. I get how the draft makes sense. I get how free agency and trades work, and that that's sort of our business as opposed to other labor laws. Yeah, I mean, the further I get away from the game, is, as as um, it may not seem like it, and I, I went to business school with the plans of like going crossing over to the business world, Harvard, and making a whole and <laughs> making a whole lot of money. Like that's why I went there, and I, I left <laughs> thinking like money wasn't as important as I originally thought. So I steered in a different direction. So like I completely understand how businesses operate, and I understand how difficult it can be for certain businesses. But it's hard for me to have sympathy when you have a legal cartel. Like a, you're a legal monopoly. Like you, you have no competition. Like it's hard for me to feel bad for them because part of the reason why I would feel sympathy for someone who was like doing a startup or even someone who had a sustained business, like one of the major companies in America, they have real competition. And you know what happens if they don't succeed? They go out of business. They lose money. They have stock price that they have to worry about short and long term. Like none of this applies to professional sports teams. Like you're going to be good. <laughs> and, and if you can't, afford it, you know what, sell your team. You're only made, I think the for the NFL, it might've been 300% um, franchise value growth in the last 10 years. For baseball, it's like 180. I'm not sure what it is for basketball, but like- Basketball so is probably more. To up. It's going to be even, no, it's going to be even more. I'm not, you're, you're right. There's no, yeah. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but yeah. it's more. I mean, when the triple, when the TV rights triple and, and the Celtics go from a $300 million investment in the early 2000s or the people made fun of Joe Lake of buying the Warriors for 400000 plus. They're like, oh my God, like the Celtics were overpriced, but what did you just pay for when you bought the Warriors and all those teams you could argue were worth four times as much? Um, so it's hard you- for me to find sympathy given all those facts. That's all I'm saying. And then like when we have these situations now coming out of the pandemic where Major League Baseball is trying not to pay these players their full salaries or not even their full prorated salaries uh, and they call them their partners like if we were partners baseball salaries have grown 30 percent in the past 10 years um and i think uh the what i say 180 i think 180 might have been for football and 300 percent for baseball they weren't partners when that was happening like 30 percent is different from 300 so they weren't partners there so why do they need to be partners now and the idea that they need to, the players need to make some sort of investment in the future of baseball. They don't own baseball. You do. So you make the investment. That's what you do. Make investments in things that you own and then you reap the rewards later. So I'm sorry I'm getting fired up, but that uh, frustrates me. So the baseball part, as I've said, I think on, on the last podcast that I did with Passon, you go, we're always told it's a business, it's a business, it's a business. What what law passed that guarantees that your business is always profitable exactly. if you own a franchise? And maybe, just maybe, hey, you had a bad year in 2020. You had a bad year. You still had your pay to your employees. And guess what? Next year's probably going to be pretty good. And when you sell your team, none of you guys are going to lose money. Because anybody who has an article about a franchise selling for less when it's sold, feel free to forward it to me. Because <laughs> Absolutely. I, just, you made the yeah, right. You made the perfect analogy on, on Bill's show uh, when you said it's like owning a big house in a fancy neighborhood and complaining about the electric bill. Like, stop it. It comes with owning a house. Sometimes the electric bill is going to be high. That's that's what happens. I was wondering which bill pod. Maybe we'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I was uh, like, I don't know. Wanted to tease it. Wanted to tease it. We <laughs> good, can't, we can't not talk about it. We no, we are. We are going to oh, talk no. about it. Uh, but let me uh, – I have two more things on the CBA thing. Is there a – and I do this sometimes, like, hey, tell me your best story and, and what do you remember the most. Is there a moment when you were president of the NFLPA where you go, oh, 
well. Like the story you tell your buddies, like the most illuminating thing where it's something that kind of will stay with you whenever you think about those times trying to get that deal done. Oh my gosh. There's so many stories. Um, and obviously there are a few of them that I do not want to on record and I can tell I'm okay you about with those later. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you one that, that I don't think I've told before that, uh, is okay to be public. Um, Jerry Richardson, the former owner of the, um, Panthers was Panthers. on, yeah, he was leading the, their management council because they have a, just like we have an executive committee, they have a smaller group that actually participates in the negotiations and makes all the decisions. He was the leader of that. He was older at that time. Um, and he was falling asleep in the meeting and fell out of his chair and like woke up and we all like tried not to laugh, but eventually bust out <laughs> laughing. So that was pretty funny. And another Jerry Richardson story, uh, that was in, um, outside of Chicago. One time we were in New York and we were getting close to the end of negotiations and Jerry Jones obviously is printing money. So like any idea of a lockout, like he's not interested in it. We were, uh, down to negotiating small things. And Jerry um, stood up and said, now we're just circumcising a mosquito. And um, Jerry Richardson said to Jones, uh, something like sit down or whatever, something like that. And Jerry Jones said back to Jerry Richardson, I will work you on the inside, you long arm son of a bitch. I'll never forget that. That was pretty funny. Um, those were two pretty good stories, I think. Oh, that is good. I've heard the mosquito one before because the pronunciation. Right, but did you... Did you did you no. hear the long arm son of a bitch part? That was the that was the that was the punchline of that story. No, the one that Woodson told me was when I think Irvin went to Jerry to try to get a new deal, and he started telling him about these investment stories from El Paso, Texas, and Irvin's like, "What?" And I think it was Irvin, and he was just trying to figure out like, "Where the hell is this story going?" And then as Jerry got done meandering and, and being folksy for five minutes, he went to <laughs> Irvin. He goes, "So what I'm telling you is on this." Thing that you're asking for, I'm gonna pass El Paso. And he was like, What? And he goes, It was the nicest, like funniest, most entertaining way you could have your boss tell you, No, thanks. I'm not interested. More with Foxworth here in a second, but this episode of the Ryan Rosillo podcast is brought to you by Full Sail University's Dan Patrick School of Sportscasting. Legendary sportscaster Dan Patrick. You know him from the Dan Patrick Show, Sunday Night Football, the Olympics, and Sports Center has teamed up with Full Sail University to offer an accelerated bachelor's degree in sportscasting. Full Sail University combines hands-on learning, immersive projects, and faculty with the real-world experience to prepare students for life in the media industry. And for the Dan Patrick School of Sportscasting, they've brought in some of the sports media's best to be part of this program. Longtime ESPN producer and multi-time Emmy winner Gus Ramsey is heading up the program, and sportscasting pros such as Sage Steele, Jay Harris, Kevin Agandi, and many more are involved. Uh, I myself recently just did a class for a while with Gus. I've known Gus a while. Bill's known Gus for a long time. I know how much he cares. And there's a lot of students there uh, that have professors that are people that I worked with. And I know how much some of these professors care. And the guy barely worked with Dan. When I first got there, Dan was kind of leaving as I was getting started. But Dan has taken the time with me a couple times to return a call, which means the world to me. So knowing that that guy is behind this where he had no reason to ever call me back or any of that kind of stuff. We talked a bunch, a couple different times, and he was just sincere about the whole thing. So that meant a lot to me. So I'm I'm all in on full sale, just knowing the people that are behind it. So 
They have um, in in their program, students are going to learn sportscasting inside and out, on camera, behind camera, podcasting, radio interviewing, and everything in between. At Full Sail University's Dan Patrick School of Sportscasting, you can earn a bachelor's degree in about half the time, as short as 20 months. And you can choose to earn your degree online or on Full Sail's campus in Orlando, Florida. To learn more about Full Sail University's Dan Patrick School of Sportscasting, go to fullsail.edu forward slash Rosillo. That's R-U-S-S-I-L-L-O. And uh, hit me up on Twitter at Ryan A. Rosillo if you want and let me know if you enrolled and I will speak to your class. And they didn't ask me to do that, but that's, uh, that's what I think of those guys down there. So I'm happy to help when I have free time. One of uh, the things leading up to the new CBA, which which I loved, which was just ownership, media relationship 101, was media members that covered the NFL saying, well, the owners would like to get this new deal done before the season starts. So look for a deal there. And you'd be like, well, right. yeah, I understand what they would like. But if I'm Eric Winston, if I'm DeMora Smith, mm-hmm. if I'm um, George Tala, if I'm any of these guys and I'm going on the player side, like, yeah, we get your desire here and then it kept happening right oh by thanksgiving you know and they, they'd like to do the new tv deal with everything that has gone on both between the pandemic and conversations that have happened in the last couple of weeks where you can see the nfl reacting in a way they've never reacted before when it comes to social issues what do you think would have happened if the cba hadn't been agreed upon prior to all the stuff going on and then we opened it back up and brought it to the table say next month I mean, I think that gives a level of power to to the players that they didn't have before because it's another it's another leverage point. Like they can, the players and the players alone have the ability to change the perception of the league. And this right now, the league's perception is kind of negative. And if the players come out and are positive about it, the largely black players or who've been outspoken, that that means something to them, and that's a a chip essentially. And I think it also Right now, they feel like villains, and they so rarely seem or they so rarely are villains or treated like villains in the public view. It normally comes down to the players because everyone knows the player's name. They know how much the players are making, and and many people are jealous of the players. And they're like, man, they got all this money, and they're younger than us. They're black. Like, that plays into it. And when it comes down to, like, decision-making time, people are on Twitter are yelling at uh, – the receivers and the defensive tackles about, man, just take the money. And the, and the players read it and they listen and it influences them. The articles that are written are about why the players can't just be happy with what they're getting. Like, so rarely do we go through the owners and hit them with the same thing. If anyone catches the heat, it's Roger Goodell. And and uh, he can't do anything about it necessarily. So that's a that's a, a tough situation. And I think the, the tables might be turned a little bit because right now it, it feels like the public in large are – happy to be on the player's side, happy to feel like they're on the side of right and happy to, to yell at uh, the, the team owners. Yeah, it's, you know the counter would be, hey, we have all of this uncertainty. And I would be thinking, well, wait a minute, I'm not going to negotiate a decade-long deal because of a, like, as, as, re, as unknown as the fall still may feel, I'm not right. signing off on 2030 values here because of a pandemic. I'm just not going to do that. I I wouldn't even want it. Like, I'd be like, that's, that's going to end the conversation. But at the same time, you would think that there's, there's a, I don't know if it's real or not. I would think from the messages that we've seen, because everybody feels like they have to be putting out like, Hey, make sure we, we check the box and make sure the NFL ownership, we do these things. Goodell does this statement and it's like, okay, so they're doing some different things. I'm just wondering 
how much that could impact a more favorable player CBA. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, yeah, maybe I'm, I'm dreaming. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure that it would impact it that much, but I do know that the impact that you would see is the public pressure. That's something that the players yeah. feel and, and the players care about. So that's taking one leverage point because right now the owners and the league have all the leverage, the ESPN, the ringer, everybody who's covering this, like, you don't, you recover from pissing off a player, his career, 10, 15 years, he'll be all right. You won't recover or it's hard to recover from pissing off a team or the commissioner or the league. Like we, we saw that with the Monday night football games that ESPN got for so long. Like that is a real penalty. That's hard to recover from. I mean, Bill, the ringer itself is born in part out of pissing off the, the powers that be. So like when it comes down to people writing articles and talking about um, who's winning and who's losing, they read all this. Like I've gotten calls and, and emails and text messages Never from any players mad about the things I say about them, but certainly from uh, people high up in these organizations. So they apply that pressure and that pressure comes down on the players and the players uh, respond to it. Yeah, I just don't know if enough people understand that Monday Night Football stretch that ESPN went through. Like they just <laughs> don't. They it's, it's been written about. I mean, there have been guys that are, that are very close to me that were involved with Monday Night Football that would be like, did you see... That we get, it felt like every week it was Jacksonville, Tennessee, and that was not when Tennessee was as fun to watch as they were this past season. And I know Jacksonville had a nice little defensive run there two years ago, but it was it was a real thing. And then when I read Jeff Perlman's USFL book, which was awesome, and it was whoever did those TV deals, it was ABC, I think, did it with the USFL. And then there were just memos basically saying the NFL was like, okay, we're we're taking it out on you guys. And my my counter to that would be, and again, no one in decision-making cared enough about my theories on this stuff that it was actually going to change the negotiation. But like, I never understood when Bud Seeley would be upset about being criticized. I would think, well, why can't ESPN tell baseball, like, hey, who else is going to pay you hundreds of millions for the Sunday night baseball slot where it's a really good slot? Like, who else is going to pay you this? So sorry, Bud, like, we're going to push back here. But right. they wouldn't because that was their, these are the high, high level things that are happening that even guys with voices don't right. always understand. And but, if CBS, like if CBS or Fox had 24 7, three channels doing sports, guess what? There'd be people saying some stuff that the NFL right. wouldn't like or the NBA wouldn't like. But we're just, or I shouldn't say we anymore, but at that yeah, time, right. you're exposed. You're exposed from all these opinion people that you don't want to tell can't say these things. Right. So I'll push back on you a little bit in that I agree with you. I wish that's how they felt. But the risk reward, and now I'm taking management position, the risk reward for ESPN at that time is so, so, so clear. Like, I'm going to piss off my my writers or my on-air talent uh, who I pay whatever, something with one comma in it, or I'm going to piss off the league that I pay something with three commas in it, and <laughs> for what purpose? So that I, I'm my organization is like appears to be righteous or something. Like if I were running the business and I was being graded by like the final score, uh, I think I would lean in that direction. Like I understand why that, why so many companies feel the desire to not upset the, the money. Cause that's like, that is the power, especially with the, how we all know how media changed. Like live sports is where it's at. You, you could risk pissing off a couple of your writers who don't really get people to show up or you can risk pissing off the NFL, which is the only reason why you exist. 
I can't believe I did not expect this turn that at, at some point there'd be a slightly pro management lean from. from <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just a contrarian. No. You all you got to do is put, me, <laughs> is put me on the other side, and I and I'm gonna find a way to fight. With you. I want to revisit though your opposition in that my position was more about baseball and not football. It was strictly a baseball thing where I thought, like, can't you tell baseball that, hey, sorry, sorry, yeah. somebody made a Bud Selig joke. Um, football, my bad. My bad. no, football, I'm with you. Okay, so when you first came to ESPN, I don't, were you kind of doing a hybrid thing where you were doing stuff for the undefeated, but you were also doing some breakdown stuff? So you're also doing the morning roast with Mina and Clinton, right. and yeah. you were, I don't want to say you were ahead of your time, but you were always more outspoken i think you were always looking at things a little bit differently and i think at first it's almost like oh what is this guy going to do is he an nfl analyst or is there more to this which is obviously more mainstream now but how tough was that for you both as a player and maybe early on transition your media career where it's like what like everybody's trying to figure out your lane and your lane was more complicated than other ex-players yeah i mean i i um after business school, I took the job at the NBA Players Association in New York, and I, I was planning on having a professional career and obviously not like I, I would pass judgment on the athletes who could only make money by staying in football. Like I didn't want to be that guy. That's why I took a year to study and go to the fanciest business school I could find. And that was the plan. Then I moved to New York and I was working from eight to eight, riding the train with two young kids and my wife was pregnant with a third and it just was not a happy existence. And then I was like, why am I doing this? It's making everyone in my life miserable. So I quit without any plans and I started writing because I always like to write. And then uh, because of that, I was writing about race and stuff that I found interesting because of that, uh, an agent contacted me and then connected me with ESPN. So ESPN, the football people, I mean, it's hard to to sell myself. Football people didn't really want me and I don't blame them for that because like, I was a decent player, but like no one knew my name. No one's going to show up for that. And then the writing side was like, I mean, he does, he's written like 10 pieces. Like he's not, we're not going to pay him. So um, I ended up meeting John Skipper and he was like, well, I, I think you're talented. We're going to pay you and you figure it out. And it just so happened that my wife's from DC and the undefeated opened and I was interested in race and stuff. And, and that's how I ended up there. And then I just started trying to figure it out, man, and trying to find ways to, to, to get it done. And most of the time I was like, eh, I don't know how much I like this necessarily. I might want to move on. But when big important stuff comes up, like that's when I have fun. Like right now I'm working more and feeling more fulfilled than I have at any stretch in this time, because it feels like big important things are happening and it doesn't feel like all this inconsequential stuff that, that sports normally is. It doesn't feel like that's, that that's not what we're talking about and uh, as important and fun as all that is it's not as invigorating to me to being able to talk to all these other bigger social issues so that leads us to this uh you reach out to me after the last podcast that i did with bill um which i've since uh talked about and, and apologized for moments in it and i've talked to a lot of different people but your conversation we we talked off the air i mean we don't have to share all this kind of stuff but i guess right there's this is one of those things where like i'm even afraid i don't even want to ask the question wrong so no. i think you just start with don't, where don't ask at. the question yeah no i i um i appreciated what you did in that podcast and like i certainly am not taping for you or anybody else like i said when we talked that we're not friends like we know each other and like we're friendly when we see each other but we're not like friends like we we wouldn't talk if it weren't for this media thing but i've always appreciated people like you 
and I'm not going to compare you to anybody else, but there's a few types of people in this business. And there are people who don't want to say the wrong thing. There are people who are uh, dishonest and will say salacious things just for attention. And there, my kids are down here. And then there are also people who I think are unafraid to say their position and, and will deal with the consequences. And that's the person that I think you are. And I've appreciated that because like, I feel like that makes me better, especially when you disagree with me. So like I was fired up on TV that day and it was good in part because I, I couldn't sleep that night and three in the morning I was listening to you. And like, I disagreed with some of the positions that you took, but none of it was, um, None of it made me angry. It just like was intriguing because like an honest person who's smart, who comes to a different opinion is useful for me in my life. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's all I'll say. I think I have some answers to this. I know I have some answers to this, but what do you think was the biggest problem um, with what I was? And I'm going to explain a little bit more on it because yeah. what we talked about, but the biggest problem that, that so many people had. Yeah, I mean, I think saying that you vote for your tax interest like that given who's in the white house right now i think a lot of people assume certain things about the decision that you made and it's hard really difficult for anybody to reconcile knowing what was said before the election and knowing what's happened since the election it's impossible frankly to to reconcile making that type of decision that's a hard thing and like i i i have <laughs> this is like the oh i have black friends thing like i actually do have friends that that voted for the current president uh because my my best friend from college my roommate uh i became friends with some of his friends and he grew up in like a rural area of maryland and i really love those guys i like them a lot but they, I fight with them all the time because I just don't understand how they could justify making that decision given all the things that were going on at the time. And I know we talked, and since then I re-listened to the podcast, and you actually never did say that you uh, voted in that direction, but that that was part of the reason why I think it rubs so many people the wrong way, and especially right now when all this stuff is happening, it's like. Man, that is that is that is a level of bravery that very few people have. Yeah, well, you know, you know me as we said. I think we've we've talked enough in that you know kind of what I'm doing. I wasn't trying to be brave. It was just a very very there's there's a bunch of stuff that I I regret. Um, but then when it turns into something, the thing that's being reported and written about over and over and over again, uh, you're just like, whoa. And then I remember talking with you about it. And we were both like, yeah, wow. How did we come to this conclusion on the whole thing? So, um, yeah, now I went back and listened and I, uh, that was not what you said, but I certainly don't think that it's not fair to be critical of somebody for something they did not say or something they did not do. But there's certainly a bunch of fair criticism to be made of you in that moment. And I think that part of the difficulty and the only bit of, of understand, or this is another bit of me understanding management is like, while I disagree with some of the policies about talking about the president or talking about race or, or politics, 
it's a blanket policy to protect people from doing what you did then is like working through your thoughts on air, you know, <laughs> yeah. because like I, yeah, no I, nothing you said is, is anything that I'm sure didn't cross people's mind. I guarantee you that um, a lot of people who are close to riots at some point considered, man, wonder if it's going to come over here, but they didn't say it on a, on a microphone because it's like, it's not something you say in that moment. And like all of that stuff, like, I don't know, I guess because I saw it as human, it didn't, that's not what bothered me. And I also like, I used it because it was like, man, this is good. I know that I need to come on the complete other side of this as hard as I possibly can, because, because it's not how I feel at all. I, I learned a lot of lessons um, in the, in the week plus since then. And you were definitely part of that because it, it meant a lot to me that you and I would just kind of talk a little bit about it and through it. And then, you know, Van Lathan and I talked for quite a while. Um, I mean, you know, whatever. Oh, like name all the all black day. people, you know. Let's do oh, it. is that what name I'm doing? More blacks. Is that what I'm doing? <laughs> no, I'm just messing with you, man. <laughs> well, you've got me right now because I, I am, uh, I, I don't have any counters. I, I don't have any lines. <laughs> yeah, there's no, there's yeah. no, that's one of the best things about this moment. While it's not, there's not very many good things about this moment. Actually, I, I've gone to the protest the last couple mornings and like, I leave feeling great. Like that's invigorating. But another great thing is like, this level of power that black people have right now is something that I, I I've never experienced where I just, I walk into rooms of white people and they get so nervous and everyone's just <laughs> apologizing to me. I'm getting emails and texts of people saying that they love me and they care about me asking me what to do. Like if you would have told me a couple months ago that all of America, all of the white men in America would be like nervous and hoping for begging for my approval, I would have told you you were crazy, but it's been fun. Making all these jokes, making people uncomfortable, fantastic. Well, enjoy it because um, <laughs> I, I don't. I like I said, I don't, I have no I have no other line to use here. But yeah, man. Uh, well, look, we'll uh, we'll do this again. All right. So I appreciate it. Sounds good. I appreciate you. Okay. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. We'll be back again this week, and that is TBD. But please subscribe, rate, and review to the pod, and uh, check out all the Ringer podcasts. And we'll talk to you, like I said, later this week. 